could just start off by asking you about how life is the last few weeks since we last talked for your beloved wife, Tipi, who, uh, you know, as you had told us is in the hospital on the front lines and Shiri and Avital and quarantine and life in Kfar Adamim. So first, just kind of give us a update about your family life uh, in the coronavirus era the last few weeks. So it's been um, very nice. Very nice. We've learned to live with this new situation. It's pretty amazing, Rabbi, how human nature has the ability to get used to anything. So in the beginning, it was very, for my wife, Tippy, her shifts moved from eight-hour shifts to 12-hour shifts. And now the 12 hours, is the, that's the new eight-hour. She used to come back, not like she come back energetic. She's happy. She has good energy. And also in the beginning, the whole Corona thing was very scary. And now it's okay. It's like driving a car. Life is scary and you get used to it. So in the past few weeks, objectively, nothing changed. Subjectively, everything changed. We got used to it. It became a part of our life. We know how to deal with it. We know how to be happy in this new situation. So objectively, it's the same situation. My wife is a, is a, is a, is a nurse in the Corona uh, emergency room in Jerusalem. And, uh, but, but um, back then it seemed intense and scary and now it seems possible and for some reason, uh, we're less scared now. Wow, give us a sense, Micha, when CP comes home after a 12 hour shift yes. in the emergency room of the coronavirus, what yes. is she like? How does she feel? What's the energy she exudes after 12 hours now? Yeah, so every, every time it's very different. Every time it's very different. But um, in the beginning, it was filled with, just, just, just so you could get the picture of what it means to be a nurse in the coronavirus emergency room, it means that you're always taking your mask off and on, off and on, and everything, uh, uh, everything, because every time you meet a new patient, you have to take all your gear off and put it on. So you yourself won't spread coronavirus. So... So, uh, and, and the reason why people in her department were getting it was at that process. When you take it off, not carefully, that's when you get the coronavirus. So, so did she so, have colleagues who have the coronavirus? Yes, 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 yes. She, had a, she has a close friend that had coronavirus. Yes, she had colleagues that had coronavirus. And also that, by the way, Wes, the fact that she had colleagues, that she has colleagues with the coronavirus and she speaks to them, that also... Um, demythologizes the coronavirus because she speaks to them and you know she sees for people our age i'm 45 my wife's 43 for people our age and sippy's also you know she's a marathon runner thank god thank god um what we have to make sure is not I, what me and Sippy decided we're not going to try to make sure we're not going to get it we have to make sure we're not going to spread it that's the only thing we, the only thing we can control our assumption is sippy's going to get it i'm going to get it we already came to, we're, we're in peace with that. Our moral obligation is not to spread it. That's the big deal. Wow, so tell us what that looks like. Uh, are you still, when, we, when you talked to us last month, you and Shuri and Avital were kind of in quarantine. You were not really seeing anybody because you don't want to spread it. How is that going, you know, the last few weeks and today? I think we're a little bit, uh, I'll tell you the truth, Rabbi, just me and you now, all right? <laughs> <laughs> I think we're, we're still trying, you know, making sure to minimize interactions between us and other people. But I think we're a little bit less Haredi now than we were then. I went to visit my parents Friday. I, I stayed outside. You, you were at my parents' place. We, we right. sat outside. We were like 20 yards from each other. But, but, but we were there. And what I realized after I spoke to my, my parents is that um, there was something interesting. I speak to my parents every day in Zoom. And then when I saw them, I felt like I didn't see them for a very long time. Mm. And it taught me something interesting about the limitations of technology. And what do you learn from that? What does that teach us? So I'll tell you something very interesting. Um, I was thinking about this a lot. David Brooks wrote two months ago a very interesting article in the New York Times. And this article got me about, about the virus, right when it began, right when it began. And this, this article got me thinking because as you know, I think I, sp I spoke to you a lot about this and maybe even a little bit to the congregation about this, that the impact of technology 
on empathy. That talent that human beings have to feel what other people feels, feel. That talent is being, um, is being weakened because we use technology. Technology gives us power, but it takes powers away from us. It gives us you know, technological powers, but it takes emotional powers away from us. Our ability or capacity to feel what other people feel is down. Sherry Turkle from your neighborhood, from your, you know, from MIT, she right. argues that it's down 40% because of technology. That's a very big deal. And I've been speaking about this a lot. I'm a very big fan of face-to-face. And Sherry Turkle's book is called Reclaiming Conversation. And she argues that only through conversation do we practice empathy, does our, our, our craving for human connection can only, be, can, can only be fulfilled through face-to-face connection. And then David Brooks wrote this very interesting article in the beginning of coronavirus. And he says, he quoted someone, an historian, I forgot who, that shows that in every plague in the past, what died wasn't only a lot of people, also a lot of emotions died. And it writes this interesting piece, how empathy was killed in plagues. One of the things we lose is empathy in plagues. And that's as opposed to other, other disasters like earthquakes or hurricanes or wars, mm-hmm. where people feel that they're, they're, they're connected to each other and it raises levels of empathy and, this, and a feeling of togetherness. Plagues is the only disaster that diminishes empathy. And he has this interesting argument, David Brooks, that after the Spanish flu and, and, uh, and, other, and other great pandemics, people didn't write you know, screen, you know, movies, books, stories, plays about about this time and the reason is he says it's because it's not that they didn't want they didn't only want to forget that time they didn't want to forget they wanted to forget who they were in that time Mm. in a moment where you feel egocentric and not connected to others that's your worst version that's the moment you wanted to forget so no movies about the spanish the spanish flu just forget about it we don't want to remember who we were so that was very interesting and two weeks into the pandemic, two weeks after I, re- I read this about David Brooks, I realized empathy is, a- David Brooks was wrong. Empathy is alive. I feel that in Israel. I'm sure I know you all feel that. Empathy is alive. And I realized, oh my God, the major difference between this plague and other plagues is that we have technology, mm. which means if, the- if Sherry Turkle is right and technology usually diminishes empathy, now technology is, what, is what's keeping empathy alive. It's the reason our empathy is surviving a plague and even raised. So it gets you thinking. Yes, we need technology, not only to keep, stay connected to the world, to the information of the world, but also to the emotions of the world. We need mm. technology. So that was very interesting. And then two months passed, and there is an Israeli researcher called Avi Mendelssohn in Haifa University. I think you guys are connected to Haifa, right, in Boston? In Haifa University, and he does this research on what does Zoom do to connection, to relationship, to memory, to empathy. And he has a very interesting argument where he says that Zoom is very limited. And I'll tell you why. The richness of face-to-face conversation happens because of three reasons. We have eye contact, we see each other's full bodies, and we're present in the same three-dimensional space. All three are taken away from us. Mm. Now, what happens when people are face-to-face with each other, um, they start, um, after a while, they might have like the same heart, the the rate of their heart will beat the same rates. Mm. They'll have the same body language. They'll be feeling each other. They'll be sharing the same emotions. They'll having, and all that, all that because uh, when you don't see somebody, we, we're not seeing all the body signals, right? You can't see like somebody's like shaking his leg because he's nervous. Your mind's not, your brain's not processing that. Um, there's no eye contact. And he says something else. Also in Zoom, there's something interesting. We also see ourselves talking while we talk, right? And our narcissistic mind, we can't not observe that. So instead of focusing on all the information we get from someone else, we're kind of also processing, we're thinking about ourselves and why is my chin like lifted and all that. And I'm, <laughs> yeah, they could see I'm bald. Like all that is happening in your mind. So instead of communication being about me forgetting about myself, learning about someone else, I'm very much absorbed in myself. 
So my conclusion is like this. Zoom is keeping empathy alive, but it's not the real thing. It ain't the real thing. When I saw my father on Friday, I realized, wow, I didn't see him for a long time because Zoom is not the real thing. And the important mm. thing we should learn on the other side of Corona is that um, after two months of communication through, or three months of communication through screens, I hope that when we meet each other face to face, people will actually close their screens. Mm. <laughs> because how tragic will it be, Rabbi, if we're finally not communicating through screens and we're still on our screens? How yeah. tragic will that be? So I hope this will be, we're talking about learning Torah from Corona, Corona lessons. Maybe this is it. Yes, wow. finally, we're craving for connection. Yes, not through screens. How tragic will it be if we'll still be on our screens? Amen to that. Now, yeah. Micha, that, that your story suggests a slight loosening of the restrictions. You know, for the first time in two months, you actually saw your parents, et cetera. Give us a sense of how Medina Israel, our beloved heirs to Israel, is, is right now today on May 3rd, 2020 with coronavirus. Do you feel it's making traction? Are the social restrictions eased? Uh, can anyone go to the grocery store? What about yes. schools, et cetera? When will Aim Prod open? Have you been thinking about reopening, et cetera? How, talk yes. about the reopening of Israeli society. Yes, so Israelis feel like we did, I mean, I know things like in Boston are not easy and I know you, your, your community went through a lot of tragedies and I'm really, really sorry really really sorry to hear what you're going through and our friends in new york and israel's different it's i must say israel's different israel's very very safe corona wise israel i think the death in israel is 25 uh, uh people for a million per million i think in your country it's much 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 higher and in your city it's much higher right so israel is very very israel is different it's different because of three reasons one israel responded very quickly I don't want to go into politics now, but right. one of the differences between our prime minister and your president is that our prime minister was, um, um, he has a tendency to always see a sense of emergency and, uh, and to take science seriously. And your president is a little bit different and that is kind of different in that <laughs> sense. So your country responded, so first of all, we responded quicker. That's one. Two, there's only one opening to Israel, the Ben Gurion Airport, it's very easy to shut Israel down. That's two. And think about Israel is effectively an island because we're, right. we're in the Middle East. So, I can, you know, we're, we're, not an, we're effectively an island. And three, Israel is a very young country. Israel yeah. is a very young country. So all those, those three factors are working for us when it so comes is, to the corona. And now Israel is pretty much open up. We're, we're kind of out. Is, I saw your girls going back to school and is, is, is Aim Proud opening up, et cetera? So, okay, so, so um, what they did was just um, Sunday, today, they, op they opened schools for grades, uh, for grades one to three. And for the not, first time? The first time, but only for grades one, one to three. Because they realize the only way to get the economy working is to get the kids out of the house. Because it's, you, know, you, you can't get the economy up and running. But they realized, so that what they did was something very conservative. They said, well, um, kids up to third grade, they're the ones that when they're at home, the parents are paralyzed. And they kind of figure that when the kids are older, the parents are less paralyzed. So the first thing they did, they sent grades one to three back to school. And my girls are in fifth grade, for example, they're still at home. They're still at home. But that's the first thing they did. They say next week there'll be more. But now, but we're in the process of going back to school, going back to work, opening up places, figuring right. it out, and hoping that, um, you know, everybody's looking for the same thing. The whole world, Rabbi, is looking for the same thing. And that is, how do we save the economy without destroying the health system? And how do we save the health system without destroying the economy? Right. We're looking for a maneuver to prevent two catastrophes. And by the way, I think it's a very healthy way of thinking when it comes to the conflict with the Palestinians, a different issue. Yes. Look, search for a maneuver that prevents two catastrophes. Don't search for the perfect solution. Right. Perfect. So that's a great segue for um, when we talked last month, you know, you talked about how there was a de facto uh, ceasefire between the Hezbollah wasn't bombing us and Hamas and uh, that, that all, all was quiet because of the coronavirus. And the question was, could we keep that peace even when we're on the other side of the coronavirus? So talk to us about the coronavirus crisis 
and Middle East peace. Uh, what is, what, what's been the impact of the coronavirus crisis on Israel and its neighbors and Israel and the Palestinians? So, so far, um, there's been a lot of solidarity between Israel and the Palestinian Authority. And we're looking out for each other. And there's a lot, there's like, like I read even Haaretz, which is a, a newspaper that always criticizes policies of Israel all the time. It says that the Corona period is Israeli-Palestinian honeymoon. It's our honeymoon mm. period. So, so think about how different it is than the way David Brooks put it. It's going to kill empathy. And now not only do we have empathy between, we have empathy between Israelis and Palestinians. Like how amazing is that? How crazy is that? So everything is now is, 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 is upside down. Now the big question is how can we carry the wisdom and our, the best emotions that appear in Corona carry it to the post-Corona life? How is that possible? How can we pull that off? And I, um, I, um, we have a new government in Israel, right? I mean, it's, you know what, this is Israel. So we never know, you know, it's not over till it's over, but it's not over because we don't have a government yet. But there is at least a deal between the Gantz fraction and Netanyahu. And one of the things that they're going to have to figure out is, not only how to fight Corona, but how to lead post-Corona Israel. And I hope they're thinking about, and I'm in conversation with them about this, how do we take Corona wisdom to the post-Corona Israel? How do we do that? So um, I think what Corona, what's interesting about Corona is that, um, you see, it's, we think about Corona the right way. We think about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, most of us, many of us, the wrong way. Think about the Israeli-Palestinian, this is like usually right-wingers say this, yes? If Israel withdraws from the green line, creates a Palestinian state, so all the Tel Aviv area will look like Sderot, will look like the area next to Gaza. We left Gaza, we were bombed in the area next to Gaza, we'll leave the West Bank, we'll be bombed in the area next to the West Bank. Makes sense, right? Makes sense. So let's not repeat the mistake of Gaza and the West Bank when we, when we left Gaza, we put under risks of, risk of rockets 60,000 Israelis, we'll leave the West Bank. Under, the risk, uh, under poss possibility of rockets, we'll have 5 million Israelis. So, and there's not that many Israelis to begin with, right? So let's not make that mistake. That's the classic right-wing anxiety that they, they call, this is the, the, with, the, the catastrophe of withdrawal. Now the left says, yes, but if we stay in the West Bank, we might go into a one-state catastrophe, where a, a binational state, the end of Zionism, it's interesting how the left can't see that the right is right and the right can't see that the left is right. And everybody's trying to prevent one catastrophe. The right is trying to, pre to prevent the catastrophe that will happen, the security catastrophe. The left is trying to prevent the demographic catastrophe. And then Corona comes and it's, we're all, it's natural to us. We have to prevent the catastrophe for the health system without triggering a catastrophe for the economic system. And vice versa. Now, there's many ways to do it. And as we all know, there's like very heated disagreements. But I find interesting about all the ideas mm. of how to pull this off is that they all agree on what the goal is. The goal, and there's so many, we all, we're all reading about it, but it's always the same goal. How do we prevent two catastrophes? And, and here's something else they're all saying. There's no way to prevent people to, from dying. There's no way from preventing like the people will die and people will be unemployed. They're not trying to find a perfect solution, but just trying to prevent catastrophes and two parallel catastrophes. And this two double way of thinking, not utopian thinking and not binary thinking, not is exactly what we have to take. And this is what I'm trying to promote. Let's learn from Corona how to think. Maybe Corona, maybe Corona could, um, cure our political thinking. So do you think that th what you just said has penetrated deeply to political leaders in Israel of the different parties? If you had people to the left and people to the right, would they, would they be changed in their thinking based on the Corona experience? Interesting. So, so, so I think Corona has two advantages. One, it's a crisis. And two, it's straining our mind to think in a new way. Crisis is important emotionally. 
because I think we spoke about, I'm not sure if we spoke about this last time, Wes. The reason why crisis is important emotionally is because it breaks the sense that there is a continuum in time. Mm. Like we kind of feel like we're not the same people we were before Corona. That's what crisis does to you. So now that enables you, it opens you to do tshuva, to think like, okay, all those opinions were their opinions. All those thoughts were their thoughts. We're different people now. That's the, um, that's what could be, that's what's powerful about a crisis, any crisis, right? Also crisis in our personal life. It gives you an, a, 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 it gives you a moment where you can create yourself all over again. Because mm. you break the connection between you and who you used to be. So first of all, it's a crisis and that's the gift itself. Mm. That maybe we won't go back to business. We won't be the same jerks we were before the crisis. And so that's the emotional gift. And then there's the intellectual gift. That we're training our minds to think in an unutopian, unbinary way when we think about the, 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 the corona maneuver to prevent a crisis for the health system without triggering a, a crisis. So I'm saying, hey, let's think about how we, how we can prevent the, the, the catastrophe that could happen if there'll be a two-state solution without triggering the catastrophe of a one-state solution and vice versa. Let's think. Uh, so I wrote an article in Haaretz and I said, don't think binary, think corona. Mm. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> don't think binary, think corona. And that's like the message I'm trying to push now. Uh, um, um, before we spoke, before you know, everybody joined on, I started, we started uh, you know, about different people that are now joining the government that, that, that I'm talking to. And I also, the largest Israel's, uh, Israeli newspaper called Israel Hayom. Um, yeah. He's one of your congregants, right. or I guess, I guess yes. congregants. <laughs> no, still congregant, yes, yes. Still congregant. Sheldon yes. Adelson, yes. Sheldon is, uh, yes, and I think, yeah, and one of the, and uh, owns that paper. And I had a, um, and I just had a interview in Israel Hayom on trying to share Corona wisdom. What are the lessons? Mm. And one of the lessons is how to think about politics in a non-binary way. Wow. Okay, so Micha, I want, so, so far we've talked about Corona and how it changes our thinking, Corona thinking, not binary thinking, and what that means for Israeli politics, what that means for Middle East peace. I want to pivot now, Micha, to what Corona, how does Corona reshape the mitzvah to remember, Zachor? Um, and I'll, I'll give you a point of departure in America and then ask you to reflect on what this will look like in Israel. Uh, so a couple weeks ago, April 19th, was the 25-year anniversary of a terrible tragedy. Actually, at the time, it was the worst domestic terrorism in America. It got superseded by 9-11, of course. But on April the 19th, 1995, uh, there was domestic terrorism in Oklahoma City. There's a federal building, the Alfred Murrah Building, and uh, somebody blew off, Timothy McVeigh and his comrades blew off explosives, and a lot of innocent people died of all ages. And, and we were marking the anniversary of that 25-year tragedy in the middle of the coronavirus. Um, and that same weekend was also the seven year anniversary of the Boston Marathon bombing when you know, a, a number of people were killed uh, and many people were injured and it was very, it was Boston's happiest, most full event marred by terrible terrorism seven years ago. And both happened on the same weekend while we're in the middle of coronavirus. And the question was, how do you mark the past when you're really struggling with the present. Um, and Israel has the same experience with, you know, what the Jewish people do with Yom HaShoah. <coughs> and then you had Yom HaZikaron, and then you have, you know, Yom HaTzma'ut. So talk to us about how Corona affects memory and how Corona affects our experience of history and of the past. Very interesting. Very interesting. Because it's, um, it's dialectic, right? The way we remember the past shapes our present. That's, that's what we classically do, right? We remember Yitziat Yitzrayim in order to have a present where we're more sensitive to minorities. That's what we always try to do. But now you're reversing it. You're asking, how does the present shape the way that we remember the past? Yes. Right? And, and we always know the art of how to let the, the past shape our present. And now you're saying, but what happens when that present shapes your past? What do we do then? Very, so I could just share with you like the Israeli experience here, right? Please. The Israeli experience was, um, 
um, not to let the anxiety of the present hide the horrors of the past. Now, this is, I didn't, like most Israelis, I didn't, for most Israelis, uh, there were some grotesque moments, I won't go into them, but most Israelis did not carry the analogy of they had Auschwitz, we have Corona. That did not happen. That did not happen. It was actually, we have Corona, we're strong, we're healthy, we'll deal with it. Yes, they were truly helpless. So I'm proud that in, Yoma, in, in our Holocaust day, there wasn't an analogy. There wasn't a living analogy. We, still, we had the respect. We realized that this moment is uncomparable to that moment. Mm. And so in that sense, and uh, so, uh, so, so I, I think in the future, what will be interesting is um, in Jewish tradition, we have the power to make rituals richer. Like for example, maybe Rabbi, in the, our next Leila Seder, God willing, Corona will be history. And if not next Leila Seder, but it is the after that, Corona will be our past. How will, we be, how will Corona be another added layer to our collective memory? Mm. Like we'll have like a, our Seder table and will we have a Corona plate? Will we carry that with us? That's what Jewish, that's the brilliance of Jewish tradition is how to carry the wisdom of the past into the future. And how will we be remembering the three great lessons of Corona, which are, remember that you're not, you can't control everything. All right, that's one of the greatest moments we have now. We're not in control. Remember that you can't understand everything, right? No one really understands reality. And remember that everybody's dependent on each other. You're not, you're not only on your own. And this has, Corona is a great a cure for some of Western hubris, where we thought we're all powerful, we know everything, we don't need anyone else. So will we, so can we use our tradition to turn Corona wisdom from a one moment insight into something that will shape our minds in the future? I think that is one of our most very interesting cultural, cultural challenges, religious challenges. How did Corona intersect with Yom Ha'atzmaut this year? Uh, and, and, and think about that in lots of ways. One, which I know that, um, you know, in Jerusalem, the Israel Prize is usually a big public deal. The, the Tanakh contest, you know, the Israeli uh, Bible contest is a big public deal. I understand those were done virtually. So what was the observance of Yom Ha'atzmaut like, you know, just at the level of ceremony and the external level and at a deeper level? How did Corona Torah affect Yom Ha'atzmaut at 72? I don't know how to answer all that. I want to share with you one moment. Okay. And this is not, I'm going one day behind. Not Yom Ha'atzmaut, Yom Ha'zikohon. Okay. It feels uh, Yom Ha'zikohon when we remember all the soldiers that gave their lives for our country. And that's, that's like Yom Kippur in Israel. That's a Yom Kippur. And that's a moment where all the families that lost their loved ones in wars are hugged by the Israeli collective. And they go up to uh, the graveyard, to Har Herzl, and anybody goes with them to hug them, to tell them how much we admire and appreciate their sacrifice. And then suddenly, all those families are all alone in their homes. And now there's, because of Corona, Yom Azikaron, there is no collective appreciation, physical appreciation of now they're isolated from the collective, all those families. So it's something very amazing that was done. I don't know whose idea this was, but it started spreading on social media, the following idea. That after, you know, in Israel, there's a siren. There's a siren in uh, the evening of Yom HaZikaron. And people said after the siren, everybody should go out to their balconies or to their windows, carry a flag and sing Hatikva. 
And so everybody will hear. So all the families will know that even though we're not with them, they could hear us and we're with them. And you ask, will that move? Will that happen? Rabbi, almost all Israelis did this. They went outside and as a collective, we sang Hatikva. And that song was to tell all the families that even though you're isolated, you are not alone. Even though you're physically separate from society, emotionally, we're completely, completely with you. So that was a beautiful, amazing, powerful Israeli moment. Well, and did you and Sipi and Shiri and Avital do that? In yes, I mean, me and, me and Avital and Shiri, we went outside yeah. and... Um, and uh, Sipi, Sipi was, was in the hospital. In the hospital. Yes. And, uh, and we sang a tikva at the top of our lungs so, 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 so other families and other homes will be, will be able to hear us. Wow. Yes. And how did the girls, they're, they're like 12? They are 11 of 11 and a half. 11 and a half. How did they experience that? They, I, I, like, they were like, they, they needed a leap of faith. I told them, right now, everybody's doing this. You can't see them, but all over Israel, people will do it. I, I actually didn't know if that's true. Afterwards, we came back home to open the TV to see if, <laughs> to see, <laughs> and they, <laughs> to see, and they saw the footage of all over Israel, people doing that. Yes. Right. Um, people that live like in buildings, it's very easy. Everybody hear, hears everybody else on their balconies. But where we live just happened to be that the family next door wasn't at home. And we, we were right. kind of, so there was a leap of faith. Like I told them, it will, seems like we're singing to ourselves, but I'm telling you all of Israel is singing with us, and they have to believe their weird dad, and we started singing. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Um, all of Israel, I want to just pivot to one last question before we open it up. Um, yeah. All of Israel, talk to us about the Haredi community in Israel mm. and the coronavirus. I don't know if you followed the story, but there was a big Chilul uh, Hashem last week in uh, New York, there was a big uh, Hasidic uh, funeral for a rabbi, oh. and people came in big numbers that are really unsafe, and it was uh, very disgraceful and humiliating for the all Jews got smeared by this uh, uh, because it was a big Jewish funeral um, yes. with you know a lot of people, and it was of course it was the Haredi community. So uh, talk to us about um, Haredi community in Israel and the extent to which coronavirus. Has, has affected its thinking over the, over the months. I love your segue, because I said all of Israel, and it's not all of Israel, it's not all of Israel. It's a certain part of Israel that sings a tikva and that feels, and you're right, there are groups in Israel that more complicated, right? And Haredi Israel is probably the most, for today in Corona age, is the most complicated group in Israel. And um, um, so I'll, I'll tell you how I understand the, our relationship with Haredi Israel in light of the Corona age. So on the one hand, to everything you're saying, all that phenomenon is also an Israeli phenomenon. When Corona broke out, we were all like isolated self in our homes and they were, you know, going, they didn't shut down. I mean, not, this is a generalization. Many of them did, many of them did. But some of them, they didn't shut down their schools when we were at home with, with our kids. They didn't shut down their synagogues. They just continued business as usual. Again, not everyone, not everyone. And, and it's really, you know, I know so many Haredim that are just, they're playing by their rules and, they're, and, and, peop and, and people hate them, despise them. It's not easy. It's really, really not easy. And as a result, like a few weeks later, so in Israel, I told you like Israel is like doing very well, but Bnei Brak, Bnei Brak, the Haredi cities have very, very high rates of Corona. And where, where, where my wife is in the hospital, so like 50% of the patients are Haredim. Now they're like 10% of the population, 50% of the patients. So you can understand why this really, really got many Israelis angry. And remember, a few weeks ago, there was a scare that there won't be enough, um, enough beds in hospitals. And thinking that Haredim have not only beds, how do you call them? The, 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 uh, the ventilators. The ventilators. The ventilators. So that's the most, the, the most limited resource. And we don't know if we have enough. Like in Italy, where they didn't have any. Like in all, right. And, and, uh, and Haredim, they're like 10% of the population, but they have like, they're, they're taking 50% of that very limited resource. 
So all the anti-Haredi Israeliness comes out. Not only you don't go to the military, not only you don't work, now you are going to die for you. Like this whole like real, real anti-Haredi rage was alive in Israel. I feel like that's not the best of Israeliness. The anti-Haredi hatred and rage, that's the ugly face of Israeliness. And what I tried to do is I, I, on Zoom, we had a very big bait prop conversation about this. And I want to share with you some of the insights from this large, like how do we cultivate Ahavat Israel, a love for one of the tribes of Israel at a time like this, right? It's easy to love the, I, I spoke to you last, last time about loving the uh, medical teams. Oh, we love the medical teams. It's easy to love the soldiers in time of war. Can we love Haredim and coronavirus? Like that's <laughs> when our love for Israel is truly challenged and some would say like like how so i want to share with you (laughs) (laughs) right so so haredi israel like in a very like in very very broad strokes has three foundations one obedience to the gdoyli like the people the people who they perceive as the great sages of the generation that's one two um um being very conserving things the way they are. Being against any form or brand of change. Change is bad. For, you know, for us, for modern people, change is exciting. Change is interesting. Remember Obama's campaign, a change you can believe in. Change is a charismatic idea for Western modern people. It's a terrifying idea. In the, it's like they need to keep things exactly the way they are in the Haredi community. And three, closing your community down from the modern world. So closing your community, freezing your community, and creating an obedient community, obedience, freezing, and, and, and shutting down. Those are the three foundations and very broad strokes of Haredi Israel. And if you think about it, um, in Corona, they were victims of all three. They were victims of obedience because some of the rabbis said, stay, go to, go, go to Seoul. So they were victims of obedience. They were victims of their um, rejection of change because they didn't move fast enough. They didn't realize they have to change their patterns of life. By the way, now they did. Now they're all, but they didn't move fast enough. So they're, a, they're victims of their uh, ideology of making, of changing slowly. And finally, they're victims of shutting them down from, is, shutting down from Israel because um, they don't believe in the science community internet, like ideas, just because they're so distanced from modern Israel, it took time for the message to penetrate the community. So the three foundations of Haredi Israel turned into the three threats to the health of Haredi Israel. So this is obviously very troubling, but also very promising. Because as we're talking within Haredi Israel, they are now rethinking their three foundations. Some, maybe we should be listening to modern Israel sometimes, you know? And maybe it's okay to change sometimes. Mm. And maybe our rabbis don't always get it right. So this is an interesting, amazing moment for Haredi Israel. Mm. Now, but, but at the same time, oh, by the way, if there is a reason they won't change, it's because of hatred. Nobody wants to open up to a, to a world that hates them. If Israelis will be able not to hate the Haredim, the Haredim that will enable the Haredim to go through the change that they're naturally are going to go through. Mm. But there's another side here, and maybe with this. Another thing we realized, the statistics, that even though so many Haredim got coronavirus, not many of them were very sick. And that's because the Haredim are the youngest group in Israel. The youngest group in Israel. So the most anti-modern group is the youngest group. Mm. So, which is very, I find this very interesting. And because they're so young, even though so many of them got corona, actually not so many of them died. Because, I mean, in proportion to the amount of people that got it. Right. And that's another thing we all realized. Wow, the youngest group in Israel. Like when you think about Haredim, we think about like old people because they're, they're the community that admires anything that's ancient. 
So the community that admires anything that's old is the youngest community in Israel. And let me turn it around. Secular Israel that admires everything that is new and young is the most aging community in Israel. Mm. So I find that, I find <laughs> that, I think that paradox. <laughs> I know you like <laughs> A Micha Goodman paradox. Nothing okay. Like and I find that, like, maybe there's, okay, so we have to teach the Haredi community and change the Haredi community and all that stuff. Let's ask another question. What can we learn from the Haredi community? What can we learn from them? And I think a second lesson we have from the Haredi community, and that is the way they think about aging. Western people have a distorted understanding of aging. And that is Western people have a tendency to admire youth, to think that the best part of your life is when you're young. And I, I read this article, I forgot by who, forgot his name. Doesn't matter. Where he says, it used to be that when people in the West and America wanted other people to take them seriously, they used to dress like older people. That gave them status. Now, when people want people to take them seriously, even if they're older, they dress like younger people. Mm. That gives them status. And when older people admire younger people, instead of younger people admire older people, that's a distortion that's typical of wet, modern mm. Western civilization. And think that's not how the Chinese tradition is. Like the older you are, the wiser you are, the closer you are to the gods. In Plato's Republic, he says, you shouldn't take young people seriously. Yes, older people are liberated in their mind. The Jewish tradition, of course, older. So now think about this. I want to end with the following, with two, with mm. two, with two insights, okay? And then we'll open this up. When you admire youth, so that cultural tendency to admire anything that's young and fresh and youth, we're paying a psychological price for that. The psychological price is, if you think the best of your life is in your 20s, means every day that passes, you're distancing yourself from the best part of your life. So every day that passes, every year that passes, you're more depressed. Think about a society that admires older people. I think the older you are, the better you get. Every day that passes, you're not distancing yourself from the best part of your life. Every day that passes, you're getting closer to the best mm. part of your life. So admiration of older people creates a healthier experience of time. Every day that passes, you're getting closer. By the way, I think that's the wisdom of Sfirata Omer. How do we count the Omer? Every day that passes, we add to those days. It's like time is not something that you get further from the best. You're adding more wisdom. You're adding more days. You're adding more experience. You're adding, it's, you're, you're accumulating time. You're not deteriorating. You're growing. So I want to say civilizations that admire older people are healthier psychologically. Haredi Israel, yes. Now, Corona challenges us because it says to us, you have to sacrifice your economy you have to suffer to save older people. Now, for Western people, that's like, really? <laughs> <laughs> because one of the greatest diseases of Western civilization is ageism, is looking down at older people. Traditional societies admire older people. And my argument is we're paying psychological price for ageism. And what I'm telling, and, and if I'll try to put this together in one last paradox, what's the problem of Haredi societies? that they believe that anything that is old is sacred. And therefore you surrender to the past and you lose your critical thinking. And as a result, those three things, you're against modernity, you shut down from Israel, you obey these old rabbis. So they're victims of the fact that they admire the past, everything, everything that is old. Think about the paradox of us, of like modern people. We feel like the past, sometimes we feel like the past is primitive. We're better than them. It's the opposite. And sometimes we believe in progress. Like anything that's, it's not that the old is sacred, it's that the new is an advancement. It's progress. So history is always improving, but your biography, you're always regressing. In the Haredi world, history is always a regression, but your biography is always improvements. Mm. 
but it's too, too uh, like too many. Uh, so, so my question is, can we have, can we, and this is a question, a modern vision of history where is where things are getting better historically, but a more traditional understanding of biography that when we age, we're getting better. And we admire older people because we know when we're going to be older people, they're going to admire us. Can we have a, a modern way of thinking about history and a traditional way about thinking about aging in biography? That, I think, is an interesting... So, so there's so much wisdom coming down to this world. I told you last time, Corona is like Sinai. It's a revelation. Wisdom is coming. And when we see the Haredi world, I think we should be thinking about this in two ways. One, how can we use Corona? to change the Haredi world. But at the same time, Corona is a moment to learn from the Haredi world. Wow. And you can't ever change anyone if you can't learn from them, if you can't appreciate them, if you don't admire a quality that they have. Micha, I speak on behalf of the entire temple. We wish that you were the prime minister of the state of Israel. Uh, just amazing Torah, amazing wisdom. Just really profound thought and insight and gives us some, I mean, the, can I just say the level of discourse in general, but particularly on Haredi is just truly beautiful and artistic, what you just did. Because usually when you mention the word Haredi and coronavirus, it deteriorates into an ugly uh, blame fest and uh, a lot of negative energy. And what you just did in that, really stunning response was deal with the real. You dealt with the real, what the deal is, and you explained it, but then you transcended it and talked about what the Haredis could learn from us, what we could learn from the Haredi. Really a beautiful moment. So thank you for that. And thank you for everything that you shared thank this you, morning. Rabbi. I, I got to tell you, when I saw like the whole anti-Haredi sentiments, I felt like my job here is to try to figure out how to frame the whole Haredi thing in a way that won't create more sinah, more hatred in Israel. And thank God, like, so this is what I share with my students in Bay Prat. And, and, um, and but, but this is, there was, there was one very important um, Rav Cook, And this is, this is actually his teaching. He says, every tribe in Israel has what to teach you. Ah. Every tribe in Israel has what to teach you. And what we have to do is try to have like, like, like try to learn the lessons from every tribe. Every tribe of Israel, no matter what tribe mm. it is, know something that you don't know. That tribe has wisdom that you don't have. And how to be a disciple, not only of the Torah of Israel, but of Am Yisrael. That's like the wow. art, the Rav Kook. Yes. And you just embodied that teaching. You just instantiated that teaching what you just did and so it was really it was a double lesson because you taught us about Haredim in Israel and also here but you taught us about how to view our differences and how to do it with Ahava instead mm -hmm. of Sina with love mm -hmm. and so a double thank you. Um, Amy Klein would you like to call on a few people for some questions? Absolutely thank you um, Micha that was great. One of the things you talked about with the Haredim also relates to Arab Israelis, not the conflict, but Arab Israelis. You talked yeah. last time about the 10 days of gratitude campaign of Beit Prat and yeah. how by appreciating medical providers that would have the society appreciate Arab Israelis. A That's few right. questions have come in about that. So I just want to join all those types yes. of questions together. One is um, when you said all Israelis were out singing Hatikva from their- Right, not all Israelis. So That's what right. was your sense of how Arab Israel responded to that? What was your sense of how the change in looking at Arab Israelis may continue afterwards? And um, yes. the third piece is not Arab Israelis, but looking at what happened in Gaza. What, one of the questions was, was there any, um, what was the assistance from Israel to the Palestinians in Gaza? Was there any sharing of medical supplies? Were any of them transferred to Israel for care? Um, and then the last one that sort of brings you from the Arab Israelis to the political is, any connection between Corona and recent announcements about annexation? Oh, okay. 
So I, I, don't, I don't know the answer to all the questions, but let me try to give it a shot. Okay. So when I said before that, Haredis, the, that loving the Haredi community is our biggest challenge in the years of, of Corona, the good news is that appreciating and loving Israeli Arabs in, 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 in the years of Corona, it became much easier. So for Haredim, it's a challenge for like uh, Israeli Arabs became much easier because first of all, the sense that we're so different from each other, well, biology is what unites us. And we are all, so we, we're all threatened by Corona in the same way. And that itself melts hatred. But not only that we're all threatened by Corona the same way, we're all fighting Corona together. In the military that's fighting Corona, in those units, in this military, we have uh, Israeli Arabs and Israeli Jews fighting together. And Israelis admiring medical teams, and that's what I said last night, I spoke about the whole Beit thing, is about admiring diversity. And so that was, so, um, so, and this is something that's alive in Israel, admiring the medical teams that have many Arabs in them. And that is something alive in Israel today like every great corona lesson, will it survive the end of corona? That's our big challenge. But this is a great moment in it. Regarding um, uh, Gaza. So I don't know enough to answer this. But I've read some theories, okay? There's a lot of theories going on. I, I don't know. I don't know if this is true what I'm going to say. But it seems like corona was an opportunity to reignite negotiations between Israel and Gaza and in order that would pave the way for a larger arrangement between Israel and Gaza. Let me just say two things about this. The main, one of the main issues that's stopping a deal between Israel and, Ham and Gaza is the, um, how do you say, the Israelis that are, there's four Israelis in Gaza. Uh, um, uh, two soldiers and then and two civilians. There's four Israelis in Gaza. The two soldiers are dead. The two civilians, we hope, are alive. And no Israeli will make a deal with Gaza without getting them back. And no Palestinians will give them back without a price that Israel can't pay. So that's like, there's a catch here, okay? But we know what the deal is. The deal with Gaza it's always the same deal. It's a deal that will enable Gaza to be rebuilt without it being rearmed. That's what we all want. There's no catch here, as opposed to the West Bank. There's no catch here. We want to rebuild Gaza, but we don't want to rearm Gaza. And there's ways to do that. There's ways to do that, like for the goods to come in through Cyprus. We'll check them security in Cyprus, and they'll come in. Oh, there's ways to do that. It's almost a technical issue but we can't reach the deal until we get the, our boys back. And they won't let the boys back if we won't let their prisoners out. They won't. So that's the catch, okay? That's what's stopping the deal. Now, because we have the myth we can't leave our boys behind. They have the myth that they can't take care of the prisoners. And here our two myths are clashing. It's a big thing. And there's many signs that Corona is creating a climate that's enabling both sides to be flexible and to reach a deal regarding prisoners for our boys that are there. So if Corona will enable the small deal, when now that, our, now that the boys will be back, that will enable a larger deal. Will this happen? I'm very hopeful. So that's the positive possibility Corona knows regarding Gaza. Mm. Annexation, annexation I think has nothing to do with Corona. Annexation has to do with the deal, the century, the whole. Uh, uh, annexation has to do with how you interpret the um, the peace to prosperity document, the Trump, the uh, Kushner Trump document. And I read the document, and from my interpretation of the document, annexation is not in order to annex parts of the west bank you have to accept the entire deal which enables a palestinian state on another part of the west bank almost always because people think by in a binary way 
people that are for annexation are against the Palestinian state. By the way, people that are for a Palestinian state are against annexation. So people on the Israeli right say, yeah, just, just only do the annexation thing and forget the Palestinian state. But at least according to the plan itself, that's impossible. So that's the shot of the plan. What will really happen? My guess, and this is, I'm here in a minority view. This is a minority view. Most of experts in Israel and my friends don't agree with me. I don't think Israel is going to annex anything in July. Again, I know I see this as recorded, so I'm screwed. I'm probably wrong. Everybody thinks I'm wrong. So, but what the, I would say, I don't think Israel is going to do any annexation in July because um, if you read, and maybe I'm just too into the words, but if you read the deal between Gantz and Netanyahu, here's what it says. Three conditions have to fulfill themselves in order to annexation. One, America has to, um, has to give the okay. And I know there's a few different, there is a disagreement within the, you know, and I think America will say it's okay if you accept the entire deal and that is, will be something hard for the base of Netanyahu. That's one. Two, yeah, they have to make sure they will not threaten the peace with Jordan Egypt or the Palestinian Authority. Okay, so all you have to do is to ask the Israeli intelligence, do you think it will threaten peace with Jordan, Egypt, the Palestinian Authority? And at least for now, the assumption of the Israeli military and intelligence establishment is that it will threaten it. So all I'm saying is everybody thinks, yeah, simple, Trump said it, Bibi said it, July, they're gonna do it. I don't think it's as simple as that at all. But again, many people think I'm wrong, and they're probably right. <laughs> but <laughs> wow. Thank you, Micha. Um, Wes, do you want to take the last question? Uh, yeah, Micha. Um, talk to us about, it, it's uh, May 3rd, and nobody here is uh, going to Israel. Uh, anytime soon. Uh, here's our last question. How can we study more Torah with Israelis? Uh, and how, like, talk to us about um, it, what are the virtual possibilities for Temple Emanuel learning a lot of deep Torah with you, with Hartman, with uh, Beit Prat, with Aim Prat, with Tikva, with what? How, how can we learn more Torah over the summer from our homes? Okay, so actually it's interesting. So much Torah is now moving online in Israel. I just don't know if it's moving online in English. And here there is like a, a language boundary, I know. So um, you said Tikva about 10 months ago. I went to New York and we filmed like this eight session um, um, lecture series of mine where they, they did it very, very professionally. They, they bought a crowd. So it will feel for me, for the speaker, alive. And they video like eight sessions. And now they, 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 they put it together in a very, I think in a very, in a, in a very, in a very professional way. And I forgot about it. And then suddenly now in Corona, it's out. So you guys, if you're interested in an eight lecture series that I did in English, in, uh, I see, is, uh, is out. So, okay. so, 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 so that's one thing. Regarding me and Bay Pratt, we could just talk about that. And yes, regarding please. Hartman, I think you just talk to Hartman about it. That's a technical thing. I think Hartman will be happy to provide. But, and I know, I know Hartman is doing their summer thing online, so I'm pretty sure they'll have a lot of, well, a lot of possibilities. Well, we, I think Amy and uh, her Hartman group are going to be doing that. I, so this is what I want to say for our final word is we're not going to say goodbye. We're going to say so long. And we're going to look forward to learning Torah with you in Israel. We're so grateful to you, Micha, for your Torah. It is just, uh, it is uh, incomparable and super helpful, always, especially in Corona. So thank you for your Torah. And we will look forward to continuing to learn with you over the summer. And uh, thank you. may, may uh, Hashem protect Sipi uh, for all the sacred work she's doing and give you a lot of strength to raise Shiri and Avital while she's off in the, in the hospitals. Uh, that you should be a great dad as you are, as also a great teacher of Torah in Israel. So lots of love, Micha. Thank you, thank you. I always say I miss you very much. I miss you all very much. I this is not like meeting. This is not the real thing. Right. The real thing will come, and and I can't wait to see to see all of you guys in Israel or in 
Hopefully, you know what? If we're lucky, maybe this December I'll see you in, in, in Boston. From your mouth to God's ears. <laughs> Amen. Lots of love, Micha. Thank you. Lots of love. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye.